0: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night,
2: feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The history of Cuba, according to today's guest, cannot be told without looking towards the United States of America. It's a relationship that's bound up both economically and politically, inextricably tied by sugar and slavery, revolution and the threat of nuclear war. In this episode, we'll hear more from Arda Ferrer, Julius Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean Studies at New York University. Her book, Cuba and American History, spans more than five centuries of the island's story and has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize. We've teamed up with Kundo to bring you conversations with all the shortlisted authors and putting the questions to Arda was Eleanor Evans. We are talking today
3: about your, your book, Cuba and American History. It, it's a huge and significant span of history we're going to be talking about. And before we get into it, I wonder if we can pick up on that subtitle and particularly the word American. What work is that word
2: doing here? Yeah. I put a lot of thought into the title and kept going back and forth about whether to to use that word. And the reason is that for most readers in the US, American means US. And I felt really strongly that the you know, the price of admission into a book about the history of Cuba could not be that whatever event or person in question had to be connected to the US. So I didn't wanted to do that. But what I think it does is it it unsettles maybe the reader a little bit and they they come from, they come from reading the title with the same question you have what does this mean is this a book about cuba us relations is it a book about cuba in the americas or in other words in the american hemisphere is it a book about um the us so uh and i like the fact that it does that unsettling and for me ultimately um, the, the word, um, the term, the title does one particular thing that I think is really important, and that is that it signals to the reader that this history of Cuba is also a history of the U.S., that the histories of the two countries are so intertwined that to tell a history of Cuba in a certain way is also to tell a history of the United States. Seen from the outside in, seen from the perspective of an outsider, seen from Cuban grounds and Cuban waters. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to give readers a history of Cuba that also served as this kind of incomplete but important history of the U.S. as well.
3: Yes, it does give such a fascinating view. And I guess um, because of the factors you've just mentioned, this history might be more familiar potentially to our listeners in the US than the UK. So we'll try and cover cover all the bases. Um, if we can go, I guess, back as far as we can then. And And how much is known about the people who lived in Cuba before Europeans arrived in this part of the world?
2: Well, I mean, some, we know some things. We don't know nearly as much as we want to know. And uh, the, the people, the, there were uh, two main groups in Cuba who uh, were living there when Europeans arrived. The most significant group came to be called the Tainos. They were, in the words of one scholar, the people who greeted uh, Columbus. And what we know of them, we know from Spanish accounts, from... Uh, material artifacts that have survived so from archaeology for instance but part of the reason that we don't know so much about them is that they did not survive the conquest for uh for very long I mean obviously not every indigenous person died but the 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 brunt of the Spanish conquest in the Caribbean fell on them and so mortality rates were were astonishing can we talk a little
3: more about that impact how um how how did colonization affect the indigenous
2: population Well uh very negatively to put it to to put it very mildly so uh they, the population was reduced by as much as 90% uh some estimates go as high as 95% they bore the brunt of european diseases of european warfare of Demands for labor, of hunger, uh, of suicide. There was an enormous amount of indigenous suicide uh, in response to the the, and the hopelessness of, of the conquest. It's it's
3: a very stark period in history, and, and we, we will know we've we've covered on our podcast before, um, the devastating impact it more broadly in this region. Can we look specifically at, at the island then, and ha- what that came to represent in this um, quote
2: new world? I suppose. Yeah, you know, in some ways, the Caribbean, the Caribbean, because it was the first site of conquest, serves as um, almost as a laboratory for European conquest and colonization. So a lot of the systems that the, that the Spanish put in place there uh, to mobilize indigenous labor, to force conversion, religious conversion on them, were all things that then the Spanish took to, to Mexico and um, to Central and South America. And for that reason, because it was a smaller population in the Caribbean, and because they were the first ones to experience the conquest, the, the, the impact was even more devastating and more total. So you didn't have the, you know, you didn't have the grand indigenous empires of the Incas and the Aztecs. The communities were more vulnerable than the ones in other parts of, of Latin America. So, so it was particularly, uh, you know, brutal on them, the whole process. There are stories, though, that are really important about indigenous resistance to to Spanish colonization. There's uh, a famous uh, story that's oft repeated. It was um, first told to us us by the Spanish uh, priest Bartolomé de las Casas about an indigenous man, a a leader named Atuey, who had been on Hispaniola and went to Cuba trying to escape the Spanish. The Spanish arrive and he tells his people that the Spanish are just in search of gold. And if they got rid of the gold, they would get rid of the Spaniards because gold was their God. And of course they got rid of some gold threw it in the river. The Spanish came, they captured him. They, um, they were ready to execute him and, and and burn him at the stake, and they gave him the chance to convert to Christianity. And the priest said to him, uh, convert, accept the word of God, and you will go to heaven. And he famously asked, are Spaniards in heaven or are Christians in heavens?" And the priest said, the good ones are. And he said, no, thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll just, I'll, I won't go there. And so he burned at the stake without accepting the word of God. And you know, I call it in the book what you know. It may have been the first political speech given on Cuban soil. Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't change the outcome for him. But uh, he then became this symbol, you know, to the present in the 19th century, in the period of the Cuban struggle for independence and beyond, of this. Re, you know resistance to external forces, resistance to colonialism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There have been some scientific studies. There's a, a center in Cuba for the study of, uh, of genetics, and they have found that about a third of women in contemporary uh, Cuba have mitochondrial DNA from an indigenous woman, which is a remarkable number. Indeed,
3: very remarkable, and am I right in saying that there are some words in both Spanish
2: and English today that endure from the indigenous people of, of the island?: Yes, absolutely, so things like hurricane hurricane, which in Spanish is huracan, which derives from a Taino word, uh, because hurricanes were a Caribbean phenomenon or and you know not they didn't know them in Spain uh, before before the conquest tiburón which is shark is another one and there's many others along the way things like hammock armchair the the cuban word for flower vase i mean the list goes on and on well it's fascinating stuff and and, and as you say
3: the island is is transformed by this european uh, arrival in many different ways um geopolitically it it's it's sort of sent its place
2: geographically is very important in this period isn't it yes So um, if you look at a map, you know, Cuba's this long island that that sits in this place where three bodies of water kind of meet. One is the Gulf of Mexico, the Atlantic Ocean, and the Caribbean Sea. And that means that it it, it has this privileged geographic position. And that was really important for the Spaniards because they used Cuba and especially Havana, which sits right at the, where the Gulf stream forms. Uh, They used uh, Havana as the place where their, their, um, their ships carrying gold and silver would meet before the Atlantic crossing. So they had to cross in, in groups of vessels to help protect against uh, pirates and, and other potential attackers. So Havana became this place that was, you know, just bustling with ships carrying all kinds of, of treasure. And that had everything to do with where the city and the and the island sat. And then later it would be really important for the Americans because the port of Havana is so close to the port of New Orleans. And and so and New Orleans is a crucial port for American commerce. And so that explains part of the US 19th century interest in Cuba.
3: And you mentioned the various treasures that would be um, sort of traded and coming through these ports. It also became very important in the trade of enslaved people, didn't it?
2: Yes, absolutely. Not, you know, it wasn't one of the first or most important uh, ports. So if you think about the heyday of the slave trade, in the 18th century, Havana was not a particularly important port for the slave trade at that point. Uh, the Spanish had uh, organized a slave trade by a monopoly that, that limited the number of ships coming in, and or limited who could trade them, rather. Uh, and also sugar hadn't yet taken off then. So one of the things that makes the, the case of Cuba and the slave trade so interesting, I think, is that a lot of the trade um, in in human beings happens after the abolition of the slave trade. So, Britain and the U.S. abolished the trade in 1807 and 1808, and um, Spain agreed with Britain to abolish the slave trade in 1820. Yet, most the vast majority of Africans who entered Cuban uh, uh, Cuban ports uh, in chains occurred or arrived rather after the trade was illegal in eighteen became illegal in 1820.
3: Mm. Yes. Yeah, so I think I, I skipped us ahead a little bit there. Perhaps we can return to that that factor in a little while. But uh, you just mentioned sugar. Sugar is inescapable in, in Cuba's story. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little more about uh, that relationship?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think for contemporary readers, they think of sugar and it just seems so banal and ordinary and now it's something we all try to avoid, that it's hard to imagine how, how, how many fortunes were built on it. And, um, you know, the, the, the first sugar island really was Barbados, which was a British colony. And it's a t- if you look at a map, it's a tiny little island. It's the easternmost of the Caribbean chain of islands. And, and yet it produced a fortune for, uh, for Britain. From there, you know, the trade moved to Jamaica, and then, and then Haiti, or Saint Domingue, which later became Haiti, became the the world's largest producer of sugar, and it was the crop in which the highest number of enslaved Africans worked. So it was at the root of the trade of the slave trade in many ways. For the New World, it meant misery in some sense. It meant deforestation. It meant brutal work. It had sugar had the the highest mortality rate of all of the New World tropical crops. Um, so it meant, it meant suffering for the people who worked it and, and suffering in a sense for the land, right? But, uh, but for the planters, it meant quite the opposite. As one Cuban planter said, you know, when, when, the sh- when sugar started booming there, he said, the hour of our happiness has arrived. It was his happiness. It wasn't the happiness of the people working the sugar.
3: Right, and I, I think, am I right in saying that was a comment in response also to the Haitian Revolution, and um, yes. that sense that Cuba could really um, prosper in the place
2: of another, another island's uh, potential trouble. Exactly, And I was about to to get to that, but then I thought I was getting ahead of myself. So yeah, all. so you know, Saint Domingue, which later became Haiti, was in the in the late eighteenth century. Uh, in the mid and late 18th century, the world's largest producer of sugar, when the Haitian revolution begins in 1791, uh, in which, as, as I imagine many of your listeners know, is one of the only examples of, of what's called a successful uh, slave rebellion Enslaved people rise up. Uh, free people of color also rise up. And in a very complex set of events over 13 years involving people in Saint-Domingue of all classes and colors, involving uh, France and England and Spain, uh, the, the formerly enslaved uh, defeat the French and declare independence. Even before that, uh, slavery had been abolished. Uh, and so you had the world's largest producer of sugar, and in a sense, one of the world's largest consumers of enslaved Africans, right, uh, kind of drop out of the picture in that, in that capacity, right? The, the, the massive sugar industry was destroyed. And so Cuban sugar planters, they, they, you know, they, they were really clear that this was their chance. And so they began lobbying for um, no restrictions on the slave trade. Uh, they lobbied for uh, no tariffs on the importation of sugar-making equipment uh, and, and things like that. And basically, you know, the king, the king of Spain more or less complied. And so their, their fortunes and their prospects really uh, began looking up after the Haitian Revolution. And it's really then that in the aftermath of that event that Cuba becomes uh, a slave society. You know, there's a a historian long ago who said at at some point Cuba. This is Franklin Knight. He said Cuba was a society with slaves. In the early 19th century, it became a slave society in which slavery shaped every every dimension of history on the island. So we'll definitely return to that in a short
3: while, but if if we can look at the intermingling history that you've mentioned at the very top of the episode, uh, obviously late 18th, early 19th century, how is America regarding Cuba?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the U S it's so it's relatively close to Cuba. Right. So, uh, so it's always, uh, well aware of it, uh, during the American revolution, uh, the Spanish aid the American revolutionaries, and a lot of that aid gets funneled through Cuba. So Cuba becomes, during the American Revolution, um, a, a really important trading partner. And remember, once the revolution begins, and 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 the U and the thirteen colonies become independent, they have to replace the trade that they had conducted with the British islands like Jamaica, Barbados, uh, etc. And uh, islands such as Cuba and colonies such as San Domingue take up a lot of that, a lot of that slack. So early in the history of the U.S., Cuba or Cuba is consistently in the top three of trading partners for the United States. Um, also, you know, Cuba, Cuba, because it had been the storehouse of Latin American treasure. Cuba gets regular subsidies of silver from Mexico. And during the American revolution, a lot of that, the, the span, the, the American revolutionaries are want that silver. And, and some of that silver ends up helping to found uh, the first national bank uh, in the U S. So there's connections like that. There's a lot of connections between merchants uh, even going back before the American revolution. Uh, and, it's interesting, there's a, a Spanish diplomat based in, I forget now whether it was Philadelphia or Baltimore, and he says, you know, maybe like in 1803 or 1804, he says, it seems like the, the country with trading privileges in the Spanish colony of Cuba is the United States. They're the ones who are doing the bulk of the, of the trade. And that pattern gets established really early in the history of, of the American Republic.
3: And T- Thomas Jefferson had an interesting idea regarding the island, didn't he?
2: Yes, yes, he did. And he repeated it many times in one way or another. So he thought that ideally, the new country that he had just helped found would have a, a northern border up in Canada somewhere, into, well into Canada. And its southern border, the southern border of the new United States would be Cuba's southern coast. So, um, and he repeated that idea with different words, you know, from the 1780s through, you know, you know until after his retirement in the 1820s. And um, John Quincy Adams uh, said the same thing. He said, um, Cuba's like an apple, and when it becomes ripe, it will fall from its tree and it cannot govern itself. So, therefore, it will come to us and we are bound to accept it into our union. And the language they use to talk about it is so interesting. I mean, in Adam's case, it's kind of a law of physics, right? In, uh, they make it seem inevitable. Of course, an apple will fall from the tree. And they also talk about it as they, they accord it such importance. So they say things like Cuba will fill out the measure of our political well-being. And again, for contemporary readers, you think why, why, why was Cuba that important? And I think part of the answer there has to do with what we talked about before: its geographic uh, location. That they really, because it's situated. If you look at if you look at a map and you look at you imagine ships leaving New Orleans and going into uh, the Gulf of Mexico and up around the Florida peninsula and and to Europe or the you know the eastern seaboard, et cetera, they they kept those ships have to cross right above Havana. So really, I think they they realized that anyone who controlled Havana had the potential to really um, to blockade or cripple American commerce, and they especially feared the British taking um, taking Cuba. And as they they do right for a few few. Yes, is it? Yes, that was. so before that, and uh, the British for uh, for ten months actually, they they uh, from 1762 to 1763, um, they they attack Havana in a very dramatic siege that goes on for um, for about two months, and they and they and they defeat the Spanish and take control of Havana and its and its outskirts with its sugar mills, etc and it's it's interesting so for those 10 months Havana is part of the same system as you know New York Philadelphia Boston Baltimore South Carolina etc yeah great
3: so another sense there of its geographic it, it's geographical its economic importance there yes um, yes in this period so we, you you've spoken about how the United States has this pervasive attitude towards Cuba of not being potentially able to govern itself can we turn to um 1898. Now I know that there is much more political foment beyond that that single year, but that year might
2: encapsulate
3: a lot. I think for our
2: listeners, what's going on there? Yeah. So you know, I, I'm not sure um, in in Britain or, or Canada what people learn about 1898. But when uh, when American students learn about a- 1898, is the Spanish American War, right? It's the it's a war between the U.S. And Spain that occurs in the remaining Spanish colonies, Cuba, Puerto Rico, the, and the Philippines. Also, uh, Guam is also a Spanish colony um, then. And um, one of the things that my this book and my and other work I've done before is really stress that that war and that moment is really the final, the very final phase in a much longer process. So. Um, when the, when the Americans intervene in 1898, they're intervening in the midst of a war fought by Cubans against Spain for their independence. And that struggle for Cuban independence from Spain um, had been going on uh, in, a, in, in very interesting, dynamic ways since 1868. So you had the first war of independence that lasted 10 years in 1868 to 1878 the Cubans were defeated you had a second war from 1879 to 1880 the Cubans were defeated and then you had the final and then it, and then after that you had this 10-year period with a lot of intellectual and political ferment and preparation and mobilization and pro-independence writing and organizing revolutionary clubs across the US and Latin America and Europe really uh, advocating and fighting and organizing for a new war for Cuban independence and then that new war, that final war, begins in 1895, and you know it, it's a it's a fascinating episode. I think um, it's waged by an army that is a multiracial army, in which many of the members are formerly enslaved, and the children of formerly enslaved people. And the the um, the discourse that the movement adopts is also also privileges. A certain, a, a certain anti-racism, uh, an argument for racial equality and for, um, and for the, for the end of slavery, initially for the end of racial discrimination and so on. So it's a fascinating movement in its own right. Cubans believe, and some of the leaders who were still fighting in 1898 believe that they were uh, on the verge of victory in 1898. That they were on the verge of defeating Spain, and it's in that moment that the USS Maine explodes in Havana Harbor, and then the U.S. declares war, and um, in April of 1898, um, and then d- defeats Spain in, in in August. They see it as an episode in which the U.S. intervenes to help Cubans win independence. Cubans tend to see it as this moment in which the U.S. intervenes in a process that that was their own, that where they had a they had a very, very likely chance of winning soon. And and in a sense it, it kind of stole stole their not that their thunder, it stole their independence because what, what happens when the US defeats Spain is there's a treaty signed, the Treaty of Paris, which then transfers the Spanish colonies to the US. So the Spani- when the Spanish flag comes down on January 1st, 1899, uh, an American flag is raised in its place. And how much did Cuba, how much were Cuba involved in that transfer? How much were Cuba, well, they weren't. So the, the, the negotiation for the treaty, uh, which was the Treaty of Paris, so conducted in Paris, the Cubans uh, were not invited, even though they had waged most of the war. Uh, sometimes when the Spanish um, capitulated in certain cities, the Ameri- they capitulated to the Americans, and the Spanish and the Americans did not let the Cuban uh, Liberation Army come in and be a part of that, uh, of that process. So, and there was a lot of resentment about that, understandably
3: right so so the perception of of a number of event, of events, but particularly eighteen ninety eight um is, is endlessly fascinating um I wonder if we can go back to the question of of slavery um just for a moment, because at the same time as these movements are happening slavery does still exist for quite a long time on on Cuba. How does that
2: happen in the, at the same time right The first war of independence begins in eighteen sixty eight and ends in 1878. Uh, slavery still exists then. So Cuba is the second uh, to last country in the hemisphere to abolish slavery. Slavery ended there in 1886. Only Brazilian slavery lasted longer until um, 1888. But the, one, of the, one of the many interesting things about that war and that movement is that it began with um, a slaveholder uh, he had a small plantation in the east. Uh, he liberated his enslaved workforce and uh, invited them to join the movement. The wars mobilized enslaved people. Sometimes they were mobilized by by you know by army uh, units coming in to mobilize. Sometimes they many times they self mobilized. They kind of ran off the plantation to join the movement. But in any event, in eastern Cuba. Uh, a large number of enslaved people and formerly enslaved people participated and what that what that did is it kind of it 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 contributed mightily to the end of slavery because how how is slavery viable after enslaved people have been mobilized to fight in a war and the treaty that ended the war gave freedom to people who participated in the war. So so right away when the second war happens, there's an incentive for enslaved people to, to join. And they do and even in in very, very large numbers. So the the war and the movement um, shook the foundations of slavery materially because of the war, but also but also intellectually and discursively because it you know it it called enslaved people it, it you know citizens. And it spoke out forcefully, especially after the end of slavery in the early 1890s, it spoke out forcibly uh, against uh, discrimination, against the idea that had prevailed for a long time in the 19th century that Cuba could not be independent because of its large Black population. And now in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, the, the, the spokespeople for the independence movement just took that argument, you know, confronted it head on, and said this is part of what makes our movement so valuable and so worthy that, that it is uh, supported and, um, and protagonized by, by both Q- white Cubans and, and people of color. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We all think about it as Fidel Castro's revolution. But it wasn't his revolution. He was just one of many people who opposed Batista.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging. So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/historyextra. Just go to indeed.com/historyextra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers.
2: Long day, late night. Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com twizzlers.
3: So we're moving into the turn of the century then. Um, Cuba has, has been... Transferred, it's it's uh, under the U.S. In, in that this informal empire, I suppose, at, at this stage. What's the response by Cuba here? How 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 do they feel about uh, the United States? And then vice versa, how is the United States regarding Cuba at this time?
2: Yeah, well, you know, when of the, when the U.S. comes in as the occupying force, right? It's it's run. You know, th- at that point, the U.S. is governed by um, by an American governor, a U.S. governor. Um, and the the military government of occupation keeps setting kind of shifting targets for what they're doing there so when they come in they say we recognize cuban sovereignty we we're not here to stay we're just here till the island is pacified uh within the year the island was pacified and so cubans expected them to leave and there were demonstrations asking for them to leave but then the americans said no nope, no nope. uh it's it will leave as soon as the Cubans prove themselves capable of self-government. There were um, peaceful elections in which usually the most pro-independence candidates won. Uh, there was a constitutional convention that was that produced a, a you know a constitution that even the u s governor said was. A worthy constitution, you know, that was the result of deliberation and elections and so on. So, arguably, Cuba proved itself capable of self-government. But then, at that point, the uh, American government said decided that the the greatest proof of capacity for self-government was the was the Cubans' acceptance of something called the Platt Amendment, and the Platt Amendment uh, gave the U.S. the right to intervene in Cuba. And it also um, prohibited the Cuban government, once formed, from um, entering into treaties with third countries, into contracting debt from third countries, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Cubans rejected it. They did not want it. They thought this is this is this is absurd. You know, if we if the US has the right to intervene, uh, we're not a sovereign country. Anyway, so the constitutional convention it was brought it was brought before them to uh, to accept rejected it you know in multiple votes but ultimately the the governor was told make them understand that they will not have any government other than a U.S. government of occupation if they do not accept the Platt Amendment so they did and it was written into the um, it was it was appended to the first Cuban Constitution um, as an appendix yeah.
3: And am I right in saying that that um, I'm sure many listeners will have heard of of Guantanamo um, Bay? Is this when that connection comes about as well? Yes.
2: So part of what the Platt Amendment did was reserve uh, land for you that the U.S. could use for naval and coaling station, and that's the origin of the Guantanamo naval base. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're we're moving ever
3: closer, it seems. To well, we are in the 20th century uh, now, early 20th century, and and. I suppose this this is the history then that really begins to form the popular perception I suppose of of Cuba US relations. What importance do you put on looking beyond the popular perception of of US Cuba relations um that are, are so often referred to in the 20th century I suppose.
2: Well, I mean I think th- there's enormous importance there if you ask people what they and I've done this with my with with classes like what do you think of when you hear Cuba and Um, They might think about the, you know, the old American cars, or they might think about um, tourists, those famous tourist posters that Cuban restaurants today, at least here, often have on their their windows. They think, of course, of Fidel Castro. And you can't understand the rise of Fidel Castro without understanding this much longer history, and in particular, the history of U.S.-Cuban relations long before Castro was even born. All of that plays into his uh, his thinking, his rhetoric, um, his actions. Uh, you know, there are other things that play into it, of course, but but that that history of U.S. Cuban relations is really important to understand what unfolds after 1959. Also, if you think about things like music, tourism, it makes you know it. It, it, it there's a way that that represents Cuba as something that's there. For an American gaze, right? For for Americans to come and, and or to go and, and enjoy, and I really want to stress that uh, obviously that Cuba is so much. It's so much more than that, and that um, for instance, if I could just give you an example, one of the one of the periods where the U.S. and Cuba. Um, I don't want to say become close, but where where Cuba enters the US imagination in particularly strong ways happens in the 1920s with the rise of US tourism, where tourism becomes what some people call the second crop after sugar. And it becomes a major destination. You know, it's gotten faster to travel, it's close, it's exotic, but it's familiar because there's so many American products and and so on and so forth. But yet in the 1920s is also a period that historians refer to as a nationalist awakening in Cuba, in which more and more intellectuals and students and politicians are becoming involved in, uh, in a critique of, of U.S. power in Cuba, thinking about um, alternative ways of linking economic and political demands with the demands for greater sovereignty. So all that is happening precisely as... Tourists are, you know, discovering nightclubs and 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 going to really wonderful baseball games. So there, you know, it's it's uh, the connections are, are great in, in, in some ways, right? But uh, but there's another side there. There's a depth there that's not captured if you just focus on those kind of popular um, attitudes and and, and perceptions
3: right uh, and i guess nationalist uh, attitudes are eclipsed by in the popular imagination the idea of communism in cuba that are so intertwined um but before we get there could we perhaps talk about how um batista comes to, comes to
2: power yeah so um yeah as a result of that that fur, you know that yeah that turmoil and effervescence in the 1920s where you have more political movements um Come to the fore, labor movements, student movements, etc. Uh, they become really active in opposing uh, a, a president by the name of Gerardo Machado, who had you know who had entered as a popular reformist president, but became a dictator who extended his term illegally, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. And so there was a, a revolution against Machado, and I'm, I'm kind of shortening this a lot, but because uh, it's it's more complex. But uh, that revolution. Uh, produces a reformist government in 1933 that is, is, is kind of internally riven. There are um, the, ministry of the, uh, the minister of the interior um, is, a, is a man who is, um, you know, when there's conflicts between labor and companies will side with labor. And in the case of American companies, in a few cases, he nationalized them, for instance. The president, uh, Grau, was reformist and wanted a new constitution and did not want all that conflict. And then on the right, you had Batista, who emerged in that period. So he became kind of almost accidentally, he became uh, head of the military forces under that revolutionary government. But the Americans were not happy with this uh, new government. It seemed, uh, it's you know, they worried that it was... Um, it was willing to nationalize U S companies that it was too popular. They called it frankly, communistic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, One of the things it did was announce that the Cuban army would no longer train with the U S that it would train with the, with the Mexican military. And at that point, Mexico was in the midst of its own revolution since 1910. So um, yeah, so the Americans didn't like it and the American American officials in on the, you know, in Havana began working with Batista and working with Batista, they actually deposed the revolutionary, the, the new, the revolutionary government. So in some sense, Batista has an, a really interesting arrival in Cuban politics. Uh, he comes in as as part of a moment of revolutionary fervor and as part of this new revolutionary government but at the same time, he's working very closely with the U.S. to kind of to undo and and to and to uh, and to thwart that revolution. And so that's that's how he enters Cuban politics, and he'll remain there uh, in one form or another until 1950, you know, until New Year's Eve, 1958.
3: And, and how does his time in power? Uh, how does that um, coincide with, obviously? Uh, rising uh, mob links and things like
2: that. Can we talk a little more about that factor? So it's not only Batista who's involved in that. Um, it's interesting. There were mob links um, with other governments in the 40 that were not um, Batista governments. But a lot of it had begun during during the period of, of rising uh, U.S. Tourism, so it even preceded this, right? The fact in the in the years of of U.S. prohibition, when so many American tourists were going to Cuba because they could drink, the mob used it as a transshipment point for alcohol, and then later they began using it as um as a transshipment point for narcotics, and they working with different uh, Cuban governments, they got concessions to run uh, gambling casinos, et, et cetera. So. So they had a fair amount of money invested in Cuba, and they also had a good relationship with, uh, with every government there in the, in, through the 1940s and, and early 50s. And the governments kind of turned a blind eye, basically, to what they were doing, and mob leaders gave, them, gave senators gift and bought cars for their wives, et cetera. So it was kind of a, um, a comfortable relationship uh, between them. And so these links are
3: are just some of the factors that set the stage for uh, another period that listeners might well be familiar with. You've already touched on the figure of Fidel Castro. Can you give us a sense of the atmosphere and the situation that allowed him to to
2: fight and rise as he did? There was an election in 1952 uh, and Batista was running for president. He was running third. He was not going to win. Uh, there was a popular reformist, anti-corruption, anti-mob uh, party that was doing really well, and Fidel Castro was a member of that party and uh, running for legislative office uh, with that party. But in the in the lead up to the election, Batista stages a coup and names himself president. Uh, and Fidel Castro was one of many, many people who opposed that move and, and, and speak out against it. Um, And, and so the, the origins of the, you know, what became the Cuban revolution in 1959 is, um, a movement against Batista as a, as someone who took power illegally. And Fidel, he he comes into this, he comes onto the national scene in a very powerful way in 1953 when he and a group of about 100 men attack the second largest army barracks in the country, and that's in the eastern part of the island in Santiago de Cuba. They fail miserably, and um, many of them are killed, and most of them are captured, including Fidel Castro. And he is tried. He is trained as a lawyer, so he defends himself in a very um, dramatic way. You know, he's very theatrical, and he did a very kind of theatrical would change his robe during the, you know, the, he would wear the lawyer's robe when he was acting as lawyer and then take it off when he was acting as witness. And he basically speak, you know, speechified throughout the trial, but, uh, but that's really when he, you know, he bursts onto a a national scene, but that said, he, you know, and he's sentenced to, to jail and, and, and then he's pardoned and goes off to Mexico. Um, and that's where he meets Che Guevara and, and so on. But, you know, it's really important for readers to know, because we all know what happened later, right? So we all think about it as Fidel Castro's revolution. But it wasn't his revolution. He was just one of many people who opposed Batista. And for a long time, he wasn't the most important one. He wasn't the one who people thought uh, he wasn't the one who had the greatest chance of success uh initially right the there was a really powerful student movement in Havana and throughout the cities of the of the country that had a lot more uh, organizational capacity that had um, that were really at the forefront of the revolution for a really long time so it's not um till much later in the revolutionary struggle that that Fidel castro uh Becomes kind of the face of the movement, and part of that reason is that some of those other leaders have died. They've been um, their ranks have been decimated by by Batista's army and police, and so by by 1958, he is he's become the face of um, the the face of the resistance against against Batista. It's really also important for people uh, to realize that it's not clear in the lead up to the revolution or even in 1959 that this will be a communist revolution. Uh, Fidel Castro was not a member of Cuba's Communist Party, which was called the the PSP, the Socialist Party. Uh, but also the Communist Party did not support Fidel Castro until... Um, until 1958 in March, which was the same month that the Sugar Growers Association lent their, you know, uh, lent their, you know, announced their support. So so the idea that it was a a communist revolution from the start doesn't hold either. And in fact, many of the people who fought with Fidel Castro or who fought in other wings of the revolutionary movement were specifically anti-communist.
3: So many listeners will be familiar with the tensions that arrive uh, or develop during the period known as the Cold War. What are the, the positions there that lead to um, some significant events that listeners, I'm sure, will already be familiar with? What, what's going on there?
2: Yeah, well, there are obviously two two hugely important important events: are the Bay of Pigs and the and the Missile Crisis, and they are maybe particularly in the case of the uh, Missile Crisis, very familiar to readers. What I try to do in the book is to do justice to them as, as these important global events. Um, right. The missile crisis had, you know, anything could have happened, including, uh, and I'm not exaggerating the end of the world as we know it. Um, that, that didn't happen, thankfully. But I think one of the things that I try to do in the book is to narrate those stories, um, and for example, in the missile crisis, tell the history of what's, you know, what many people refer to as the 13 days, right? Starting with the moment that the day that Kennedy is told that there are missiles, Soviet missiles in Cuba, and to the 13th day being when Khrushchev agrees to withdraw them. And so there, there's a way that it is possible to narrate that history as a history that unfolds between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And Cuba in that vision becomes kind of empty ground. It's just a place where missiles are are put. And I try to shift our perspective. So even though I, I focus on that story, I begin in the town, in this tiny little rural town in Western Cuba where the missiles are first discovered. And I tell the story from the perspective of the people in the town who are all of a sudden, there's these huge trucks that are barreling down their streets, shaking everything because they're so big. And they're peering, the people are peering out the windows trying to figure out what's going on. And they see the the backs of the trucks have these you know, the beds with these tarp you know things under tarps and they look like large palm trees. Of course, you know, they're the missiles. They're not large palm trees. But I do that just to remind us, you know, what's at stake. It was they were there. They were ground zero. This is a history that is also a Cuban history. It's not just the history of the US and the Soviet Union. And I try to do the same thing with the, you know, with the Bay of Pigs, where we know the the exile forces land and you know arrive in this bay and the swamp and they're defeated, but I tell the story of what's in that swamp before they arrive and who the people are who live near there. And they're mostly charcoal workers. Um, They're, you know, they're Fidel Castro in his first Christmas Eve in power has dinner with charcoal workers in the region. There is a tourist resort that's being built. That's set to open a few weeks after the invasion happens. And as the invaders are, you know, are, um, Are approaching the coast, they realize everything is lit up because the construction workers for the resort are having a party. And, you know, it's an interesting story, but it's also a way of highlighting that, you know, that no invasion can land on an empty beach. Even something that, you know, in this case, it literally wasn't an empty beach, but even had the beach been empty in that moment, there's still all this history that has unfolded there and people who live there and that history and those people shape what can and cannot happen. And, you know, American military planners can't will away that history. And so I, so I, I tell these stories in a way that fits within the Cold War frame, but that also highlights and privilege, not privileges, but highlights. It just reminds us that there are Cubans there who are living it on the ground day to day.
3: Right and and we're obviously talking right now um the 60th year since since that significant crisis what is your sense of how how cubans perhaps look back those six decades how do they regard their own agency during that time how does it live on
2: yeah that is a very difficult question because in some ways there any question like that is always asked from a moment in the present and the moment in the present for Cuba right now is a really dire one. Um, You know, you have, right now, you have these rolling blackouts that have been going on. You have inflation that's, you know, 500% for some items. There's severe shortages for food. You have all these people trying to leave. So it's a moment that feels like a moment with not much of a future. And so what that means is that when people look back, they look back with that sense of hopelessness. Um, and so I would say that, um, that most people are not looking back favorably on that, on that history. And in a sense, they don't want to look back. They want to figure out like, what, what's coming next. And, and no one seems to be giving them an answer to that.
3: And I, I am sorry, disappointed to have to press this on because I know that the, what comes next is, is a huge part of your book, but I will say listeners can, can read it all in, in your wonderful book. Um, but if uh, we can perhaps uh, begin to wrap up on post, post-revolution uh, and then Castro obviously goes on to hold power for a significant stretch of time. Could you give us a, a quick sense of how Cuba, if at all, does change under, under his
2: regime? Yeah, Wow, that's a, a big huge question. question. Yeah, so I mean, in, in many in many ways, it, it you know it, it changes radically. It's a radical revolution, and radical revolutions introduce radical change. So if you, so, among the many things it did, it had enormous geopolitical importance. It changed, it completely transformed Cuba's relationship to the U.S. and therefore to the world. So that's one way. Another way is that it it virtually eliminated private property. Through uh, for one agrarian reform in fifty nine, then a second agrarian reform in nineteen sixty three, uh, a few years later, a, a, a program that that um, targeted urban more urban property, small businesses, etc. Uh, so there is it it, it 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 drastically altered the regime of property on the island. Uh, if you think about the history of migration, in many ways it it. It completely well, not completely, but a lot of the ruling class before the um, before the revolution left. So, and that's tied to the changes in the regime of property, right? And essentially um, uh, abolished uh, the old ruling and uh, and capitalist class. Um, it tried to change the way people understood themselves in a way. So it introduced new, it tried to introduce new gender norms, new, um, new ways of speaking. Uh, so it did try to change people at a, at a very kind of individual level, interior level that didn't work. People don't, um, don't change that easily, but those are just some of the ways, uh, and there's, there's others too, but those are the ones that come to mind, uh, right away. It changed institutions. It abolished political parties. Uh, the, you know, legisl- you know, the structure of government completely changed, right? So all those are really significant changes. At the same time, there's continuities, the significance of sugar, right? It continue- Sugar continues to be important uh, for decades. Um, the significance of tourism, which was not so Large in the beginning of the revolution, but then became so uh, in the later period in the, in the 90s. And, and in some way, those are both related to the, the, what I see as the greatest continuity, which is the, the, con- the continuation of, of dependency, of economic dependency. So there was a, you know, Cuba was in obviously an economically dependent relationship with the US. Uh, after the revolution, it became economically dependent in, uh, on the Soviet Union, so it never attained uh, economic uh, sovereignty or self-sufficiency in a way that, um, that had been the goal for, for, so, for, you know, for decades and decades, even b- before the revolution. Such such interesting
3: factors there, and I'm I'm very sorry to skip through them, um, as you just have, but can we look at that picture um, of economic dependency or the political relationship there that exists
2: post-Castro? It's not that different. There was the moment where it seemed like it could be different when Obama was in office and Raul Castro was in office, and they announced at the same time on December 17th, 2014, noon, that the two countries would embark on a path of Normalizing relations, and and things did change or shift somewhat in in response to that. So more Americans started traveling there. Uh, Cuba had in, in embarked on some of its own uh, modest economic reforms, but ones that that made it uh, a little easier for Cubans to open small businesses. Uh, and you know, the combination of those two things had given Cubans a sense that maybe for the first time in a really long time, something would shift. Um, but obviously that, you know, that, that didn't pan out, right. Donald Trump became president and reversed those, Uh, uh, then Joe Biden became president and, and has, you know, has announced some changes, but essentially it's, um, hasn't changed much yet. So it's still, um, you know, the economic embargo is still U.S. policy. Uh, Cuba continues to blame all its ills on the U.S. embargo, not taking into account its own, um, its own failings. So, so in some ways it hasn't, it hasn't changed that much uh, post Castro. One thing that's, really, that's happening right now that many people are not, not aware of is that Cuba's in the midst of a very significant migratory crisis. So this, uh, since October, between October of last year and July of this year, something like 178,000 Cubans have arrived uh, in the US, mostly through the US-Mexico border. So um, it's about 10% of the population. So, which is, you know, a, 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 hu- a daunting number, really. Um, and I think that has forced Biden to announce some further changes, like the reopening of the embassy and, and the, you know, the fact that they're going to begin to process immigration visas again. But, but by and large, it, there hasn't been much change.
3: Well it, it's a fascinating clearly enduring relationship between um Cuba and the United States uh, and for listeners who who do want to hear more after this fascinating chat I do hope you'll you'll check out Cuba and American history which is uh, which is obviously out now and thank you so much Ada for talking to us about your book today my pleasure
0: that was ada Ferrer. Her book, Cuba, an American History, is published by Scribner in the US and is out now. Arda was on the shortlist for this year's Kundal History Prize. And if you'd like to find out more about the prize, head to kundalprize.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced
1: by Daniel Kramer Arden.